Welcome to the Enchanted Ears podcast, where we discuss anything and everything Disney. I'm Angela. And I'm Joe. And on today's episode, we're going to be discussing adorable baby animals, <laughs> uh, a crazy <laughs> Hall of Presidents rumor, and we're going to be going back to the 1980s, another edition of our Disney decade. So before we get into all of that, just a reminder, if you want to support the show, leave us a rating or a review, share this episode with your friends, um, all that stuff helps. Also, if you'd like to uh, ask a question that we'd answer on a future episode, uh, you can go to our website, enchantedears.com slash podcast question. You can ask a question there if you have an idea for a future show topic you'd like us to cover, or if you have a question on planning a trip, feel free to reach us there. Yeah, we've gotten some really good suggestions lately. We appreciate that because... You know, doing this and the YouTube channel, we're constantly looking for ideas and we have a lot of them, but it always helps to hear from you guys. And then it's also extra cool because you get to hear us talk about your topic. Exactly. (laughs) All right. So jumping into Disney news this week. So Disney, do we want to start with the baby animal? Okay. So because I think you're like, yes, we want to talk about this. Full disclosure. We had to delay the start of this because I literally started to cry. Um, There is a baby mandrill that was born on July 25th. Oh my gosh, here I am again, getting so emotional. There's nothing wrong with this baby. You're not crying because something tragic happened. You're crying out of Lion King excitement joy because Rafiki is a mandrel, correct? Correct. Yeah, he's not a baboon like he says. So Wait, so Rafiki in the movie lies about what he is? He says, well, he makes it... Hold on. So (laughs) Rafiki in the movie, whose big point is to Simba, I know who you are. You don't even know who you are. So Rafiki, who says that to Simba, himself doesn't even know who he is. He thinks he's a baboon and he's really a mandrel. He, he says to Simba, I am a baboon and you are not. Or he's, he said it means that you are a baboon and I'm a, I am not. I'm sorry. I got that backwards. I probably just lost my Lion King card. Oh my gosh. You don't even know the Lion King anymore. I was going to say, <laughs> I can't believe Rafiki wouldn't know who he is. All right. So so, so now yeah. you smells both look like fools. <laughs> no, it's it, we're good. We're good. I, I corrected myself after it came out of my mouth. I'm okay, just too, Rafiki's I'm too, too thrown off. Rafiki is too by wise. The, the, this baby mandrill um, that was born on July 25th and the last report that I've seen is uh, that basically so she was born to Linus which is a first time father and Scarlet and as far as I can tell um, they actually don't even know the name or the the um, like the sex of the baby yet because the mother is holding the baby so closely that they haven't been able to do a full inspection. And I checked this right before we we recorded because Dr. Mark Penning, who works at Disney, said that as soon as on his Instagram, he would say, you know, the name and the sex as soon as they knew it. He hasn't posted about it yet. And also, speaking of that, go follow Dr. Mark Penning. Uh, he's Dr. Mark, uh, Dr. Mark at Disney on Instagram because his Instagram is on point. All right, and then also keeping with the animal theme, there's going to be a Disney Plus show. It's a National Geographic documentary on Disney Plus that's kind of behind the scenes of working with the animals at the Animal Kingdom. So that sounds interesting. That, that's going to be coming out this fall on Disney Plus. Uh, another piece of news that Pixar announced is that they announced a new movie uh, called Luca, which is going to take place on the Italian Riviera. So it's a, a about a boy named Luca spending a summer on the Italian Riviera. And what's interesting is they announced this movie that it's going to be coming out summer of 2021. There's very few details. They released like one piece of concept art. It's it's two kids like jumping off a cliff, uh, I guess, into the Mediterranean Ocean. Hmm. Um, but what I thought was interesting is that they're announcing new movies when all of the current movies are being delayed. And so I, I think it, I, I found it interesting that 
you know, uh, Pixar had Soul that was supposed to come out this summer. Right now, I looked because I was like, oh, what's what's going on with that one? It's tentatively scheduled for November of this year as a release. So I don't know if this kind of means that Disney is confident in those November releases because it just seems interesting to me that they would be announcing a new movie for next year whenever they have not even released their movies this year. Like you would think they would want to say, hey, we got this new movie coming up at some point. Like I could see them wanting to announce that, that there's still movies in the pipeline. But what happens if those November movies get delayed and they say, okay, we're going to make those next summer. Like it it, it seems interesting. It, it seems kind of strange that they would be announcing a next year movie with everything going on this year. Yeah, it does. But I mean, I don't, I think that Disney also probably is doing that because I mean, as a company, I feel like a lot of their job is to provide hope. And right now hope is kind of something that it's a little dire right now. Um, so I think that maybe Disney released that because they wanted to give people something to look forward to. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think, it makes sense that again they announced that a new movie's coming again to kind of keep people engaged and excited about it. But again, I was thinking, oh, Soul! Like, didn't Pixar have that movie? And it's like it's almost like that one's fallen off. Like, you would think they would mm-hmm. want to promote that one more since that one's like their next one coming up. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it is just to kind of keep people engaged and to kind of keep people let let them know that hey, we are continuing to make movies. It's not going to be like there's going to be no new movies ever. Like we'll, we'll get through this. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just interesting. I think yeah. what I'm more surprised by again, is just the fact that they put a date to it, that they said it is summer of next year, as opposed to just saying, Hey, we're working. Like we have this new movie that's going to be coming out. Kind right. of like with Disney animation, they have Raya and the last dragon. I don't think that has a date yet, but I mean, that's pretty well known that they're working on that movie at some point. And maybe it does have a date. And I just, I don't know about it, but I think it would be more like that, which which would kind of make more sense. So, I don't know. I I can't wait to see a new Disney movie. I need that. I mean, until then, though, I'll keep watching all of our Renaissance movies that we're preparing to do some episodes on, and also watch Frozen two as many more times as I possibly can. Yes. <laughs> all right, and then the last thing, I again, I kind of teased this at the beginning. So there is a, a kind of crazy rumor, and this is strictly in the rumor column here. So. Who knows how valid this is, but there's been this rumor going around that Disney is looking to redo the Hall of Presidents. And and the rationale makes sense is because they don't want to have, you know, every time there's a new president, the show has to shut down. They have to retool the show to make the current president the main animatronic. You know, with politics, there's always people that disagree with with what they're doing or the direction they're taking. And so it it becomes it becomes an issue one that you have to redo an attraction every four to eight years depending on how often you get a president and things like that. So so it makes sense that they kind of want to get away from having a specific president kind of narrated show and they want to make a more you know general show that I think celebrates the history of America and things. So that makes sense to me. The crazy part is they are the rumor is that they have Weird Al and Lin Manuel Miranda working on this redo which which is just insane i hope it's true because yes i mean lin-manuel miranda did hamilton and i think they kind of want something in that vein where it's it's a unique take on american history and lin-manuel and weird al are are friends they know each other very well yes well lin-manuel is a huge fan of of 
of uh, Weird Al Yankovic, and then Weird Al has done. Um, He's done a polka of of the Hamilton songs. Yes, they very so, much have a mutual admiration. So that pairing definitely makes sense. And you know, I, I think, feel like they're both offbeat too. Yeah, and I think the rationale and what the rumor that Disney is looking for makes sense. Again, I'm not sure how true this is. I hope it's true. Um, I, I hope this is. It so would true. be amazing. It would. Yeah. It would be absolutely incredible. Can, can we just take one second for just like one microsecond to admire Weird Al Yankovic and in the career that that man has had, because he is the only person who's ever who's like popular and continuously kind of sort of you know underneath like he's not an a-lister but he is he stays in the conversation yeah he does because he always you know he does his parodies of popular songs so he's always in the conversation because anytime there's a popular song out there he's kind of taking his spin on it so yeah he he keeps his cultural relevance um yeah over the past you know 30 plus years It, it it is pretty amazing yeah this also kind of came out around the time you know, now we have the Splash Mountain redo. I think Disney is potentially looking at other quote unquote questionable rides where they kind of want to get ahead of some of this stuff so that if, you know, again, something happens and people cause a stir about something that they can have a backup plan or, you know, the Hall of Presidents, whenever a new president gets elected, they're going to have to change that. So instead of just changing it for a new president and again being stuck in this cycle of always changing it why not just close it down for a little bit longer and do a complete redo and kind of breathe some new life into that show you know anyways and Mm -hmm. and again kind of make it more a timeless show so that that way they don't constantly have to be uh, redoing it so I, I think it makes sense that they're looking at it again who knows I mean Lin Manuel has done a lot with Disney lately um so I think this would be great but I just kind of wanted to mention it because it's it's so out there at first you're like what that sounds crazy but then you're like but this would be amazing so I, I think it'll be it'll be really interesting to see what happens yeah I I definitely agree I I think it I don't know when's the last time we did the Hall of Presidents it's been a long time it's been a while yeah so it is definitely not something I I, I feel like it's probably a pretty low attraction a lot of people probably skip it and I think that's probably the other reason why they're looking to to breathe some new life into it so All right, so for our main topic this week, we're going to be jumping into another decade. We are up to the 1980s. And I must say, getting ready for this episode, I started getting a little bit sad because I realized we only have a few decades left. (laughs) And I was like, I'm kind of going to miss researching these and looking back on the history of the Disney company through the decades. I I will say, I I won't necessarily miss that, but we are getting to some juicy decades now. I mean, this one was pretty juicy. There's a lot going on here. A lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, too. Exactly. You typically hate history, so I'm not surprised that you're like, oh, I don't mind not re- learning about history anymore. I don't hate history. It's just that... I know. It just, <laughs> it just you're takes... an English major, not a history major, right? Yeah. Exactly. I, I mean, I feel like as I get older, I have more of an appreciation for history than I used to as a kid, but... It was all a joke, and you just... <laughs> oh. You beat it so much that it <laughs> not became a joke. You made it serious. <laughs> But you're correct. We are getting into some very juicy decades here. So the 1980s, I'm going to preface this by saying, if you do not like boardroom battles and kind of (laughs) corporate shakeups, this may not be the decade for you. But I will say with that, it is still a very important decade and it it leads into a lot of things. So it's still very important. I would say there's... 
it, this decade almost has it all. It has, I mean, oh, man, we, why don't, why don't we tease. use this for what our episode tease. title? Yeah, like it has it all. It has like some some of the behind the scenes. Like I don't particularly like conflict, but there is some really interesting stuff going on behind the scenes. Some really popular movies from Disney comes come around by the end of the decade. They've turned everything around. Um, they have some parks that open up. It's crazy. Yeah, and I will say. I mean, the 1980s, so like I said, it's, to a certain extent, it is a lot of more behind-the-scenes things that happen with with Disney. There aren't necessarily a ton of iconic movies that came out of this decade. I mean, at the end of the decade, and we'll kind of get into this, you have Little Mermaid, So, but that's 89. So, I mean, a, a lot of it, there, there really isn't, you know, Splash. too much. Yeah, and that's, again, towards the end of the decade. So, there, there really isn't necessarily maybe it's a ton uh early in the middle of the decade, but it is very much a building block that kicks off the kind of second golden era resurgence of Disney, that the things that happened in the eighties kind of kick that off. And what's also interesting is, you know, Michael Eisner takes over in the mid eighties and, and we'll get into all these details, but he comes into power through this, you know, board corporate shakeup, and then 20 years later, he's basically on the other side of the exact same thing when then Bob Iger becomes CEO. So mm-hmm. it's very interesting how his career is bookend by basically the same events. And it's Roy, Roy E. Disney. So that's Roy O. Disney's son. So that's Walt's nephew. <laughs> that's not confusing. Yeah, so that, that's Walt's nephew. So so the Roy we're talking about in this decade is Walt's nephew, uh, other Roy's son. But... You know, Roy basically was involved in both of them. And so it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because when we get into the 2000s, you would almost have thought Michael Eisner should have seen it coming because he was on the other side of it originally in the 80s. So it, it is very interesting. It's almost like a Disney movie where it's very poetic, you know, kind of the, <laughs> the mirroring of everything. It's almost like they, they wrote the script. But it's, it's like a, what is it? Like, I think in literature, it's like, is it called a frame? I think where it begins and ends in the, the same way. Major, you tell me. I don't know. It's been many years since I've actually put any of that knowledge to you. We're so. taking your degree away. So, okay. <laughs> all right. So you've heard from, you've heard people getting their de- degrees conferred upon them that they didn't earn. I'm actually going to have mine stripped away from me. Yes. You did earn it though. We'll I did, that. I did. I can I can confirm that. All right. Both of them. So the the early 80s and so kind of just going through the Disney companies to kind of set up the big kind of management shakeup that happened in the mid 80s. But uh, Ron Miller, who was Diane Disney's husband, so that was uh, Walt's son-in-law, uh, we talked about him in the 70s. He started to take a more uh, prominent role in the company. He was a producer. He was the one that started Touchstone Pictures. You know, he he wanted to to make more adult movies. He wasn't just focused on the animation. So he was starting to to take a, a bigger role at the company. And then in '83 uh, and '84, actually became CEO. So CEO for like a year. Yeah, I was just thinking about this actually the other day because we have been behind the scenes working our way through the Renaissance movies. And I was just thinking about why the Lion King is really like so successful when the rest of them were successful. And I figured out it is, I think because the Lion King appeals so much more to a wider audience, there's humor in it and things in there for adults. And I feel like the adults were okay with going and taking their kids to see it multiple times because it's entertaining. So I feel like, I mean, as much, you know, Ron Miller did some weird stuff, but 
he was kind of on to something there where almost if you could involve that adult audience, you were actually really widening the scope and then making movies that will, you know, you can watch over and over again throughout your childhood and adulthood. Yeah. And he really, what his goal was, was to almost redefine a little bit what a Disney movie was because, you know, up until this point, they were all G movies. They were animated movies. It was very much kid driven. And he did want to, you know, push the envelope a little bit more. I mean, he, he definitely pushed the envelope technologically. I mean, with Tron that came out in 1982. Mm-hmm. And that was, that wasn't necessarily an adult movie. I mean, that was, it wasn't a kid's movie either, but it wasn't a, like adult themed. It was, it was more kind of maybe like adolescent type. Yeah. It was like, like a Star Wars. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I really do feel like, you know, Star Wars was kind of Disney's white whale for a really long time. We talked about in the previous decade how they passed on on Star Wars, and it seems like in some of this, these choices of movies that they're making, they are trying to make up for that. Yeah, they definitely were. So, so Tron was was a, a good movie. I don't think it was a huge commercial success. It eventually got a sequel like 20 years later, probably <laughs> 25 years later. Um, but that was a technological, you know, marvel. I mean, they talked about on the prop culture show on Disney plus how difficult it was to add the computer animation to it. And the, the special effects people joke that this was like the first movie to do this technique and the last, and like there's a reason (laughs) it's because it was so hard to do, but some of the other movies that Disney actually produced and, and Ron Miller was a part of in in the eighties were kind of interesting. And, they didn't necessarily go over well with that's, audiences. That's putting it lightly. Yeah, they didn't go over well with audiences because they were expecting family-friendly kids movies and they weren't they had a lot of adult themes and we'll kind of talk over some of them. But this created a clash with management with with Ron and with the other Disney management because it was almost a fight for what is Disney now going to be because you don't have Walt anymore, you don't have Roy anymore. It, it, they're kind of like trying to find themselves. Almost. I was going to say, it's almost like a battle for the soul of the company. Like they didn't know what direction they were going to go in and who, what audiences they should play to. If they wanted to try to break out of this, you know, very, um, you know, kid friendly, like persona that they developed that, did they want to continue in that, on that path or did they want to try to do something different? Yeah. And, and a battle for the soul is, is a very good way to put it. And especially, kind of in the middle of the decade, it really did become a battle for Disney's soul. And what's interesting is, you know, a lot of this stuff, a lot of these movies, it, it kind of didn't work in the eighties, but the touchstone picture label did become a very successful label. Right. I mean, in the nineties and the two thousands, and we've, you know, we've kind of talked about this, you know, some of the movies, I mean, Disney has branched off I mean, just look at pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, they, they do yeah. branch off of these PG 13 movies, but so some of the movies that they made, uh, so in 1980, you had The Watcher in the Woods, which is a supernatural horror film. <laughs> and Ron Miller actually is quoted of, <laughs> as saying, this could be our exorcist, <laughs> which uh, you cannot believe. I, I couldn't believe that any Disney executive would be happy. I mean, he was saying this very happily, that this could be our exorcist. And I know what he was saying, because exorcist was, I think at the time, it may have been like the highest grossing movie ever. I mean, it was a very popular, it was, popu- huge, it was no a very what. popular movie, but I don't know that you want to compare a Disney movie to being the exorcist. I, I literally wrote on, on my notes here next to that. I highlighted, this could be our exorcist. And I wrote, um, huh? Like- yeah. So, so it's, it's very interesting. And this was actually based on a novel uh, called a watcher in the woods. 
Yeah. So um, because when I was when I saw this on here, I'm like, okay, this is very intriguing. I want to know more about this movie. So uh, it was originally released in New York City. It sounded like just New York City. And it was it only made $40,000 before it was pulled from the theaters. And then it was re-released in 81. Uh, and it I think they fixed up the ending. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that they fixed, they changed it in some ways and it made 1.2 million opening week. So it ended up doing, and I think that overall, I think it made like 500 or not 500, I'm sorry, 5 million, like domestically. I was say, if it made 500 yeah, million, that would be crazy. this is the greatest movie yeah, that's yeah. ever made. But it has a cult following. And then actually they made a TV remake of it in 2017 with Angelica Houston. And then it was directed by Melissa Joan Hart. So. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And I think a lot of these movies from looking them up, they, they didn't necessarily do very well at the box office, but they do seem to have, like you said, some sort of cult following. And I think part of the issue, and, and I, there's a, a really good uh, article on denofgeek.com that kind of talks about a lot of the movies in like the 70s and 80s when Disney had this like darker period spin on movies. But they kind of talked about in that article that the, the leadership at Disney didn't necessarily agree with you know, Ron Miller's approach. And so they were like, we're just not going to market these movies. So like, we'll make oh, them, but we just won't market them. And so that's why they didn't do well. It wasn't necessarily that they were bad movies. So to your point, they have mm. a following. People like them now, but nobody went to see them in the theaters because nobody knew they existed. Oh, wow. And so it, it's that whole kind of interplay. But then in 1981, you get Dragon Slayer. Now this was co-produced with Paramount. So it wasn't strictly Disney. And I believe Paramount actually released this one. So it wasn't like, Disney didn't distribute it. They just helped co-produce it. But this one shocked Disney fans because there was violence, adult themes, even brief nudity. Essentially, the story of this is there is a dragon, which sounds pretty cool. And again, this is kind of like a fantasy horror movie. It sounds like an interesting movie. I kind of would like to try to find it and watch it. But there's a dragon. And to appease the dragon, they have to make a human sacrifice twice a year. And I believe it's all girls, too. Yeah. So imagine going in, oh, hey, this this new movie Disney co-produced, and uh, oh, we're now sacrificing girls to appease a dragon from killing us all. <laughs> yeah, this one actually was nominated for Best Effects and Best Music at the Academy Awards. Yeah, it sounded, like I said, it sounded like a pretty good movie, and, and again, it was, you know, co-produced with Paramount, so I think, you know, Paramount, it you know, makes... Good movies. Yeah, they make good movies. Yeah. I mean, they, they're not just kids' movies. So I think it was a decent movie. Again, it's just the fact that yep. with Disney's name on it and you go to see a Disney movie and then this is what you get. I just can't imagine being a parent back at this time and being like, oh, let's go see this new Disney movie and then seeing some of the, these themes, the violence and everything else. And Because you think, you know, being a parent is already hard enough. We're not parents, but we know this. Um and then, you know, whenever you hear Disney, you're like, okay, well, I can kind of shut my brain off. I know that this is going to be fine. I could take my kid there. And then they're going into the theater and they're experiencing this completely different thing. Yeah. And again, I'm not sure if at the time this was even marketed as a Disney movie because they did have touchstone Maybe. picture labels, which was, that was kind of the idea to get away from the Disney name. And this was co-produced with Paramount. So I don't want to necessarily say that this was marketed as a Disney film, but I do think, you know, Disney's name was attached to it mm-hmm. in some way. So you could have thought that, you know, if you were were kind of paying attention. But then in 1983, they had Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is another dark fantasy horror. So you can see a theme here. 
dark horror <laughs> fantasies. Uh, but this is based on a Ray Bradbury novel, and it is about a kind of haunted carnival that comes to town. And there's uh, the leader of the carnival, Mr. Dark, who is trying to take control <laughs> of the town and these kids have to stop him, which again, <laughs> sounds like a creepy supernatural thriller. Well, right. See, so I read this one and I was like, oh man, Ray Bradbury, like I love Fahrenheit 451. Like this is, this is going to be so good. Um, and then I like started looking it up and apparently it was a flop and they uh, initially like they release or they showed a test audience they hated it and they used a year to re-edit it like they took a whole year to re-edit it and still like it just did horribly and ray bradbury wasn't happy i think like it just didn't turn out yeah i think that's kind of a common theme i saw too with a lot of these movies and again i'm not sure how much of it was the movies weren't good so this one sounds like they showed it to a test audience and maybe the movie wasn't good versus how much there was kind of that internal struggle of management. But it did seem to be that there a lot of these movies in the 80s went through some dramatic like re-editing. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1985, The Black Cauldron came out. And this was an animated movie. And again, this was kind of um, a darker and more violent animated movie. But this came out in 1985, so this was a year after Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg took over. But apparently, and again, this is from that Den of Geek article, but apparently uh, Katzenberg watched the film and was like appalled by how dark and violent it was <laughs> and went immediately to the editing room and cut like 12 minutes of the film out and, and completely re-edited it. So you know, it, it completely changed kind of how the movie was. So would I, that movie have been more I was successful say, originally? Is, so I is, don't know. Is, so is that original one, like the Snyder cut? <laughs> well, no, I think, that, I think that's lost. I don't think, yeah, it's not like today where everything's on hard drives. It was actual film. Um, but yeah, so it seems like a lot of that kind of happened through these movies, that there was a lot of, you know, management meddling in them. Um, you mentioned Splash. That did come out in 1984. We mentioned Tron. Frank and Weenie, which is uh, the Tim Burton uh, movie that came out in 1984 as well. And I think that one, um, I don't know if that one necessarily was like too dark or violent or anything, but I, you know, just a, a Tim Burton movie. I mean, I think you know what you're getting with yes. with Tim Burton. So and I think that's kind of, I was going to say, was that's he, like his start with was, collaboration with Disney? Okay. I was going to say, was he collaborate or was he with Disney at that point? Cause I feel like they, they had a weird, like he was with them sometimes and not with them other times. Yeah, I believe he started working with them and got fired and then started making his own movies and then came back. Cause it wasn't until the nineties that we got uh nightmare before Christmas with, with Disney. Yeah. Um, so this was, so I, I imagine this was probably like his first movie with them. Okay. Uh, and this is about a, a dog that's like a turned into like a Frankenstein dog, <laughs> it's a pretty, which is a pretty interesting, uh, you know, kind of thought so so you, you have all these movies and and again this this is really all just kind of setting the tone for what is going to happen in 1984 but the movies aren't necessarily doing well you know there's not animated movies being released which is kind of disney's bread and butter so it's a it's a low uh period for them then these live action movies aren't doing well they're not like the live action movies of today that all make a billion dollars <laughs> people like them or don't like them so, so Disney's not doing well financially from the movies. And then they're also building two theme parks at the same time. So, yeah, I, that was in, insane. Like, whenever, again, I'm looking at this and I'm seeing 82 or 1982 is when Epcot opens. And then 
83 is when Tokyo Disneyland opens. Yes. And that's insane. Like they're building two big parks at the same time. I mean, Epcot is, you know, what one at the time it cost 800 to 1.4 billion dollars and was the largest construction project on earth and that's like 2 to 3 billion dollars today and then right. at the same time they're conceiving yeah. starting to work on Tokyo yeah, too. And, and Epcot was way over budget. So I mean they they definitely didn't want to spend that billion plus that they ended up spending. It it was way over budget and the Imagineering story does a really nice job of talking about this of how they were on Epcot and working on Tokyo at the same time and how mm-hmm. the contract the, the comparison and how the comparison of the two teams were so different oh, because yeah. Disney was trying to cut corners every way they could because Epcot was so far over budget and the Oriental Land Company said money was no object yeah. we want the best of everything and so it, it really wanted to show you how you know Tokyo Disneyland was extremely successful because they put the money into it that needed to go into it whereas Epcot wasn't super successful at least initially like i think initially it did well just because it was new and then it kind of started falling off because they didn't put a ton of money into it i mean when it first opened you had the land pavilion you had world of motion spaceship earth obviously uh and then the countries were uh, you had the u.s american adventure canada france germany italy japan mexico UK, Norway, and France. But it wasn't until shortly after the park opened that you got Figment. Wait, France is in there twice? Oh, yeah. France is in there twice. <laughs> no, okay. They have two France pavilions. France is just in there once, yeah. <laughs> um, but Figment, I believe, didn't open until 1983. Uh, Morocco pavilion didn't open until 1984. You didn't get the seas until 86. So you had Norway. It was an opening day, but the Maelstrom ride didn't open until 1988. And then Body Wars wasn't until 1989. So... There wasn't necessarily a ton to do there. Um, but then, yeah, you're right. You had Tokyo Disneyland at the same time, opening in 1983. Now, it cost 180 billion yen. And from what I could figure out, converting that to U.S. and then adjusting it for inflation, <laughs> I think it's roughly $2 billion in today's dollars, which feels about right. I mean, most of these theme parks seem to be a few billion dollars when you're building them. I think Shanghai... Um, was a couple billion dollars, so that that kind of makes sense. But now Disney didn't have to pay for that one, but they had Imagineers, obviously, that were working on that. So they're yeah. they're kind of they got to pay for the Imagineers. So they're, they're stretched a little bit, but they definitely had to pay for Epcot, and that had some major budget overruns. Yeah, I, if I remember correctly, yeah, the the Imagineering story did a really nice job of talking about like the difference between the Imagineers. That were in the U- the U.S. park versus the the um the park in Tokyo because the ones in the U.S. park were like they couldn't get anything they needed like nothing everything was like scratched together and then the people f- that were in Tokyo were like able to get whatever they needed they had all the bu- the budget yeah it was crazy um definitely watch that if you haven't right so all of this again just kind of sets up and adds to Disney's financial problems in the early eighties. And if you've listened to our previous Disney Decade shows, and if you haven't, go back and and check those out. This is a common, this is a running thread in Disney's history, Mm -hmm. is that they are cash-strapped, especially Mm -hmm. in the early days with Walt, because Walt was very much, uh, money's no object, it has to be right, it has to be perfect, 
and Roy was the one that had to figure out how to pay for it all. <laughs> this sounds like our relationship. Yes, it does a little bit. <laughs> it very much does. And so it, it the the company was hampered, you know, for a while. And then, you know, we talked about when they got into the fifties and sixties and at Disneyland, they finally kind of had money for the first time because Disneyland was doing so well. Well, in the eighties it it kind of starts going south a little bit again because again the movies stopped doing well you have all this theme park expense and disney wasn't the huge you know conglomerate that it is today i mean it didn't have it didn't have tv channels it, it didn't have you know marvel and lucasfilm um so it, it wasn't the, the huge company it is today so in the mid 80s disney the the company its stock had become so um, low in value that the assets of the company were worth more than what the stock was. And so, you know, when that happened, there was a lot of kind of corporate raiders that tried to take over Disney. So this was like a very touch and go period for Disney, kind of like the 83, 84, because there very much was a real possibility that Disney could have been uh, purchased and taken over and, and the assets kind of divided and sold and the company would not have existed now um, mm-hmm. as we know it. And there's actually a, a really good book called Storming the Magic Kingdom. It's by John Taylor, which kind of goes into a lot of detail on this takeover attempt. That's a great title. Yes. Yeah. It's a good time. It's a very good book too. I definitely recommend reading it. Like for anybody that is kind of interested in learning more about this, but essentially what happened is somebody by the name of Saul Steinberg attempted a hostile takeover attempt. And his plan was essentially to take over the company and sell off the assets. So he wanted to sell off the production. He wanted, I think he wanted to keep the production company and and sell off the other assets. Cause again, the company, because it had spent so much money on Epcot and and the movies weren't you know doing that well, um, and animation had kind of fallen off. They did the Fox and the Hound in '81, um, right? But they didn't they didn't really have any you know major hit animation movies in the early '80s, right? Like they, they had it wasn't until the late '80s that they had any like hit movies, that right? Were and that's animated. after Eisner and everything took over. So, so he he wanted to try to take over the company and sell it, and Ultimately, he got like a 12% stake in the company. And what happened was Disney ultimately uh, bought him out for $325 million. It's called green green mail. So it's like a play on blackmail where yeah. I guess this was a common practice back in the day where somebody would um, you know, buy a lot of shares in a company, threaten to, to take them over, and then the company would say, all right, we'll pay you a premium to go away. And that's how they'd make their money. Oh, so, so he got $325 million. Slimy. It was kind of was just like misstep after misstep for management because they did this. And then like the investing community turned against them, which didn't help their stock because I think some people thought, Hey, selling off the assets would be a good idea because the company's not valued well, but they paid him 325 million. So it was 12% stake. And that's according to a June 12th, 1984 New York Times article. It's amazing if you Google stuff, <laughs> how you can find these archived articles. Yeah, it is crazy. But that would have valued the company at around $2.7 billion back in 1984. 
today, Disney's worth about $214 billion. I was just thinking, what is it worth today? And then you answered. Well done. I was inside your brain. You were. Get but, out of my brain, please. But it's so, scary in there. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like it's like uh it's like uh one the watcher movies? in the woods up movies? in there right now. <laughs> but so it, it is amazing just to see in, you know, twenty plus years how big the company has grown. And I think understanding this part of Disney history is important because whenever we get into the nineties and kind of the Michael Eisner expansion era, and even Bob Iger to an extent of purchasing all the companies, this really kind of changed Disney. It's kind of this inflection point where they, the company went through this where its value had become so low, it was a legitimate takeover target. And so they had so hard to imagine that. Right. And, and what they went through and kind of some of the things I'll get into here, it, it almost changed their approach that they realized. And I think again, you know, Eisner came in under this, that he understood, Hey, I need to grow bigger to ever prevent this from happening again, (laughs) grow big or go home. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at even today, you know, the acquisition of Fox, I mean, to a certain extent that was, they paid $72 billion for Fox, but Fox sold itself because they realized a $72 billion company realized they weren't big enough in the current media landscape to stay independent, that they had to team up with somebody else. So it, it kind of goes you know, back to that. So in the 80s, after this, Disney realized, hey, we need to get bigger. And that's kind of why you get all of the, the theme parks and the hotels and everything, because they kind of a good way to protect yourself from this happening is to be too expensive for anybody besides like Warren Buffett. You know, to, to buy you or something like that. So, so this was all going on at 84. And in order to combat uh, Saul Steinberg's takeover, Disney went through a lot of crazy stuff in a very short amount of time. And during this time, Roy had resigned from the board because he did not agree with the direction the company was going. He you know, didn't like the movies. I don't think he got along well with Ron. I'm, uh, you know, very well. I don't, they didn't agree on where it was going. Roy was very mm. much an animation guy. Gotcha. And he, he wanted to see animation. So he had resigned. And part of it was because he had plans to take the company over. Mm. Mm-hmm. So he was not on the board. So there's a lot going on. So what Disney did um, in 84 to combat this takeover is they purchased uh, a real estate development company, Arvita. And what they did, and this is, you know, kind of technical corporate stuff, but they, they didn't pay cash. They paid for it in stock. And, and the goal was to dilute Saul's shares in the company. So instead of him owning 12%, he would own a, a lower percentage, which would make it harder for him to buy the company out because hmm. the, the lower percentage. But this gave... We'll just call it financial magic for those of you who yes, don't understand that yes, kind of stuff. Financial magic is a great way to put it. <laughs> but what this did... And I'm included in that in that bunch. So I'm not. that wasn't me talking down to anybody. That was me saying that's magic yeah i was gonna say i I very much nerd out over this stuff yeah as an accountant you guys can skip very interesting you can skip forward 30 to 45 seconds again this is it's very interesting (laughs) stuff because it really does i mean it's a crazy year in the company that all this stuff happened in the course of one year and again it it kind of influences everything that happened after it um but so they, they they purchased it in stock and what this also did is it gave the the bass brothers uh sid robert and lee uh, roughly a 6% ownership in the company, and they'll come into play later. And immediately, the day that 
deal closed, Disney announced that they agreed to buy the Gibson greeting card company for $325 million, again, all in stock. And hmm. it's amazing that within a year, they complete a, one purchase, and then the day that's completed, announce another purchase. And again, so this is $500 million in stock. Again, it was all about diluting um, Saul Steinberg's shares. The deal ultimately didn't go through because after they kind of paid for Steinberg to leave, they realized they didn't need this and a lot of the board didn't agree with it. Hmm. And so they they ultimately did not buy Gibson Greeting Card Company. But also during this time, Disney had an agreement to actually be purchased by MCA, which was the parent company of Universal Studios at the time. Um, but that fell through because Disney wanted Ron Miller to be the president of MCA and there was like a disagreement with their with MCA's chairman, and so that deal ultimately fell through. Mm-hmm. But again, they're, like they're kind of grasping at straws at this point. This this is the thing that like really intrigued me about this whole takeover situation, like all this corporate chess. The fact that Universal and Disney could have been the same company, like part of the same company. Now I don't know what happened eventually. I know that you know I don't know exactly how that worked with Universal Studios if they got sold off from that company or that company got taken over. Uh, so if they would have remained part of the same company, but if you think about it, it's like, like one super park or neither park would exist. Like I, I think so much, and we've talked about this on the podcast before that universal and Disney are fantastic for each other because both, not only do both of them bring people in to, um, into Orlando and then people were like, well, I'm already at Universal, so I might as well go to Disney or I'm already at Disney, so I might as well go to Universal. But also, I mean, they definitely have a battle of like technology and, you know, like there's they're constantly kind of trying to one up each other, which really helps them to become better parks. So, yeah, that this whole like it kind of sent me down my mind down a rabbit hole because I was just thinking about what could have been or what couldn't have been. Yeah, I mean, ultimately... You know, Universal and Universal Studios has gone through its own crazy history of being owned by a ton of different corporate entities. Um, it's been bought and sold a lot of times. It's now owned by Comcast. So Comcast purchased Universal. Uh, you know, they purchased Universal, the company which owns Universal Studios, maybe five or six years ago. Yeah, I, I do, do remember that. I do think Comcast before that did try to buy Disney in the early 2000s as well. Hmm. Um, yeah, because I think at this point, you know, Universal Studios didn't exist then. So I think if MCA would have bought Disney, they would have never had to build Universal Studios. And then again, also if Comcast would have purchased Disney, they would have never had to buy Universal. So I, I don't think they would have ever been under the same corporate umbrella. But it is interesting to think that if this would have went through, maybe you wouldn't have Universal Studios at all. Right. Because there there would have been no need for that. So so all this is going on. I mentioned Roy res- resigned from the board. He resigned in March of 1984, and he started his first Save Disney campaign, which the second one happened in, again, the bookend of Mike Wagner's career, so, so which we'll get is, to later. This is like Roy Disney's, like, you know, change.org petition. Exactly. <laughs> so he, he started this, and this was in the midst of everything that was going over with, with Saul Steinberg. But eventually what happened was with everything going on and the turmoil in the board. And then when the Bass brothers gained a significant ownership percentage, Roy kind of teamed up with them because Roy still owned a lot of the company. Okay. Um, you know, so he still owned a lot of shares. So then with, with the Bass brothers ownership and they, they bought, you know, additional shares to raise their percentage, which would have been worth billions today. I believe they had to sell it off 
in the early 2000s due to the you know economic turmoil, but it'd be worth billions oh, um, today. But he ultimately teamed up with them, and they were able to uh, oust Ron Miller. And this is when they brought in Michael Eisner to be CEO um, and Frank Wells to be the president of Disney. And then also as part of that, Roy came back on uh, a seat on the board, and he became chairman of the animation department. Because, again, he mm-hmm. was one that was very much, hey, animation is what made this company. Yeah. Animation is what's going to lead this company. So within a year, like Disney went from being a takeover target and potentially going to be dismantled and destroyed or purchased by some other company non-existent to Roy. I, I mean, you know, he had a Save Disney campaign, and he – did just that. I mean, he saved Disney. They brought in Michael Eisner and Frank Wells in September of 1984. From there, again, it, it kind of became, we need to protect ourselves from these corporate raiders. And part of it was, you know, not only them growing bigger, but all the debt they took on to like finance all this stuff made them less uh, advantageous of a target anyways, mm. you know, kind of fighting this stuff yeah. off. But I mean, it was just a very crazy year and just an interesting shakeup. Cause again, when you think of Disney, you think of their movies and you think everything is just so like hunky dory, hunky dory friendly. And the turmoil at the top of the company um, is not something you'd expect from like a Disney company, but it is super interesting. Again, I really recommend the storming the magic kingdom uh, book. If you are, interested in knowing more about this time period hmm. yeah but so that that kind of is the inflection point in the 80s and and then everything kind of changes from there so you know eisner he came from paramount he was very much a hollywood guy he knew what movies did well so he really emphasized that touch tone so whereas you know we went from the watcher in the woods and dragon slayer <laughs> you know you got good morning vietnam in 1987 who framed roger rabbit in 1988 dead poet society in 1989 a pretty woman which came out in 1990 which is a disney movie technically <laughs> you know under touchstone <laughs> Uh, is, is interesting. My, my note next to that. Ha ha. It's a Disney movie. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and Eisner brought in, you know, Katzenberg who worked on the animation side with Roy and animation started turning around. So you, you, you got some the, so, you know, notable animated movies leading into the Renaissance. Right. Right. So the great mouse detective was in 86. Oliver and company was in 1988. And then comes the Renaissance. A which, movie called the little mermaid. Yeah. A little movie called the little mermaid. Yeah. So actually, you know, Disney's box office, um, fortunes turned in 1988. They actually took first place at the box office. So again, everything turned around pretty quickly. And now they're the only one at the top yeah, of the box office. The bo- well, nobody's the box office. Yeah, now, that's true. Yeah. But, but movie Disney has movies that came out office. 25 years ago are at the top of the box office now. Yeah. Well, and they're Disney movies because it's Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So. <laughs> 25, I think is a little un- underrated though. Star Wars was, uh, no, I think it, it was 40 years I think they said from because it was it's empire so I think it came out in 1980 so oh, I think I said 40 man. years ago yeah it, it uh it led the box office a week or two here ago the whole company is is turning we also get another theme park in the 80s so <laughs> you know having Epcot uh wasn't enough we get another one we get Hollywood Studios and again this was kind of Eisner's MO was just to build out and develop as much as possible and at the time it was called mgm studios yes it was disney mgm studios in fact it was mgm studios until what 
I think the, 2008. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. because I know whenever I was there as a, as a child, it was MGM. Correct. Yeah, I think it was 2008. It, their licensing deal with MGM ran out. But essentially what happened was it, shortly after he became CEO, he had this idea for this. He wanted to have like a, a studio backlot tour. And for Epcot, I found this interesting kind of tidbit. So Marty Scalar and Randy Bright, two Imagineers, they created a great movie pavilion for Epcot. And it was going to go between the land and the imagination pavilion. Uh, Eisner saw it. He loved it so much. He was he like, stole I, it. He's like, I want this to be in a new, <laughs> I want this to be in its own park. And then, so that's kind of where Hollywood studios, you know, came to be. And when it opened, so, you know, people, I guess before galaxy's edge, you know, now it's not a half day park, but that was kind of the joke of Hollywood studios for a while. There's, it's a half day park. There's, <laughs> there's not really much to do there. Well, when it opened in, in May of 1989, there was only two rides. There was the backlot tour and the great movie ride. So wow. talk about a half day park. That's like a two hour park. Yeah. And then a few months later, we got the citizens of Hollywood who are still there today. They're like the longest running, uh, street atmosphere show ar- mm-hmm. around. Um, but yeah, but it was interesting that this park opened. And again, the goal was to take visiting Walt Disney World from a two, two and a half day to a three to four day trip. Um, so it was all about, hey, you're going to spend a day at the Magic Kingdom. You're going to spend you know, maybe a day at Epcot, you know, maybe a half a day somewhere else. How can we keep you another day? Well, mm-hmm. let's throw in a, another park. And again, there wasn't a ton to do there, but I think it was just all about trying to keep people on property um, for as, as long as they could. But it, it's interesting that they it's were like... Quantity over quality. Yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> like They had two rides. They're like, yep, that's good. Let's build a whole theme park out of it. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, just a really kind of wild ride throughout no pun the intended. 80s. Yeah, th- throughout the 80s. And yeah, n- not necessarily maybe a lot you know forward-facing stuff, a lot more behind the scenes, but all still very important. And I think probably some things that a lot of Disney fans may not know and mm-hmm. but have but Im- have impacted us all again it, it kind of fed into what the Disney company's mo was through the 90s and I think this you know explosion of theme parks and hotels and experiences and restaurants it would animation ha- I mean yeah. the fact that you know there was a priority put back on to animation is what led into the Renaissance yeah none of that would have happened you're right you wouldn't have had the, the Renaissance but you wouldn't you may not even have had Disney if some mm-hmm. of this stuff never happened because they were a, a takeover target and if they didn't make a change and grow and become you know a larger organization and get that spark back, they could have failed or they could have potentially become a takeover target for somebody else. So it is really important in their history. And it is, it is really interesting the more you kind of get into it. And if you start kind of thinking of like, to your point, Oh, well, what if universal would have bought them? Would you have had universal studios? Would they have been under the same umbrella? You know, what would have happened if you didn't have the resurgence of animation? Would they have just given up on animation and we would have never gotten, we probably would have never had, Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin or Little Mermaid. Yeah, we could almost do a whole, you know, we did a whole episode on what if Disney had gotten Harry Potter. Um, we could almost do a whole episode on what if it, if Disney had been bought out. Yeah, I mean, if you go into the uh, the MCU multiverse here, and there's a mul- <laughs> there's a universe out there where there is no Disney. So does that mean the MCU doesn't exist in that one? 
Ooh. Ooh, see, these are pondering questions. This is when it gets interesting when you start thinking, you know, down these down these rabbit holes here. Tune into so. our new podcast called The Philosophy of Disney. Yes, I think we just need to do a multiverse one where we ima- imagine if something never happened, and then just go down a crazy rabbit hole of all the possibilities, <laughs> all the the butterfly effect of it. That's what we'll call it, the Disney butterfly effect. So, yeah, so I I think it's interesting. I mean, I, it ended up being a pretty crazy decade. And again, you're right. It was a juicy decade. I think the '90s are another juicy one. The 2000s are juicy. It get it's really good. Like the next, you know, 30 years here, uh, up to present day, there's a ton of stuff going on with Disney. I mean, even the world the... just moves quicker nowadays. <laughs> um, sure. I I think that it well we perceive it as that because now we exist by the end of this decade. But um, one other final thing, just to kind of punctuate this is in, in 1989 this is where the first talk of of purchasing jim henson productions comes in so yes. yeah like yeah they, the muppets yeah eisner wanted to buy the muppets and you know jim henson tragically died and that kind of shut that talk off and it mm. wasn't until i think 2004 they ultimately disney did buy the muppets um, but yeah, but it, it, the initial conversations go all the way back to 1989. It's crazy. Again, it's all about just getting bigger, getting as much IP to feed the parks as you possibly can. So, wow. All right. But I think that pretty much wraps up this episode. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to it. And again, if you haven't heard our previous uh, Disney decade episodes, go back and listen to those. We'll be doing the 90s, uh, 2000s, 2010s uh, coming up in the next few months. We do these uh, once every month or so. Yeah. Um, so, so we'll be finishing up, you know, the final few decades, three episodes left, then we're done. Then we got to wait 10 years so that we can do the (laughs) 2020s. So we'll, we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully we're still around, uh, doing podcasts. By then we might have five listeners. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, so thanks everybody again for listening this week. Uh, make sure you subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. You can also check us out on social media. Uh, On Facebook, we're Enchanted Ears. On Instagram, we're Enchanted Ears Podcast. Also, be sure to head over to our YouTube channel. Have a lot of great episodes over there. We recently did an episode where uh, we made homemade Mickey bars. We attempted to make our own homemade Mickey bars. Yes, so be (laughs) be sure to check that one out. We've also done some some drawing challenges over there, and we found out that we are definitely – not going to be hired as Disney animators in any way, shape, or form. Um, so, so be sure <laughs> to check some those. game shows and things that just yeah. don't translate very well to podcast content. Yeah, so be sure to check that out. We are Enchanted Ears over on YouTube. So, thanks everybody again for listening. Thanks for lending us your ears. And we'll see you here next Monday. Bye bye.